From the hills of central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Charlie Goode. Charlie is the Southeastern sales lead for Greensight, a digital technology company providing cloud-based services for turfgrass professionals for all aspects of their operation from mowing and remote sensing to soil monitoring and staff planning. Charlie spent his career in the turfgrass industry from landscaping and sod production to golf and sports turf management. A graduate of the NC State and Penn State turfgrass programs, Charlie's been actively promoting the use of autonomous mowers in the turfgrass Before we get to my conversation with Charlie, data-driven management, as we'll speak about today, will invariably include nutrient and pesticide applications, whether it's a sports field or a golf course. And for that precision, you need our partners at Frost Spray Technology. Precision applications require the right equipment to get the product down at the right rate at the right time. It simply doesn't make sense to buy your next sprayer from a mower company. You should buy it from a sprayer company. Learn more about this at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm here with Charlie Good. Charlie is the Southeastern sales lead for Greensight, and we're going to get into all of that. But Charlie, you have, for a young man, you have had a variety of experiences. And as we've talked offline, you're a lifelong Southerner. So let's start with that. You grew up in the South and then eventually you started working in the landscape industry. Talk a little bit, you know, I'm going to ask you to put 20 years into just a few minutes, but boy, you've touched a lot from landscape and sod to sports and golf and now sales. Uh, Let's start out with that first little glimmer that you got that this might be something you wanted to do. Was it when you met my former graduate student, Emily Erickson, in the two-year program at NC State? So I actually got introduced to the program at NC State from the landscaper and sod farmers I worked for, uh, John Hyman and Hal Hendrickson down in Beaufort County, uh, Carteret County, North Carolina. And I was there after my first semester of college, didn't really know what I wanted to really continue to study. I just stopped playing D2 baseball at St. Andrews Presbyterian College and was just kind of looking for a, a calling and started harvesting sod and really liked getting dirty and seeing grass grow from the ground up and harvest it and to start back all over. And my boss was there, told me, you know, if you like doing this, man, you should go get a degree in turf. And I had no idea, like many people, that that was an option. Within months, I enrolled in the Ag Institute at NC State, the two-year program, and Dr. Erickson was actually my first professor that I uh, had a class with. It's so wonderful to know how many young people in NC State that Emily has uh, impacted. And so that was the beginning of it for you. And talk a little bit about now that you caught the bug, right? You had a baseball background, so it sounds like a lot of us in this business, you were attracted to the sort of connection to sports. Was there that early decision, Charlie, that you had to make about which direction you wanted to go? Or was it one thing for sure out of the gate and then maybe I'll get the other thing going? You know, once I found out it was like a a career option, baseball was my first love. I'll be honest, I'd never even played golf at that point in my life, (laughs) you know, early 20s, which is kind of crazy to think about now. So, yeah, baseball was by far my first love. I started working on the student grounds crew at NC State, and I got to work on pretty much every sports field. I mean, even basketball set up. And we had John Turnour from the Nationals come and speak to our class and Dr. Erickson's or Emily Erickson's class. And one thing kind of led to another, and I was able to get an internship out there the following summer. Growing Kentucky bluegrass in uh, D.C. was 
quite an eye-opening experience for me. <laughs> it was amazing how much went into actually keeping it looking 100% year-round. And you know, what people don't realize oftentimes is when you're talking about baseball, you're spending a significant amount of time fussing around in the dirt, too. Oh, Lord, yeah. I mean, 80% of the time is clay and dirt management, 100%. Two and a half acres, that's one fairway, essentially, compared to, you know, 100 acres on a golf course. So it's a lot more dirt management than turf management, but the turf management you do is pretty intense. And uh, it's a pretty big art out there and all the different patterns and the edging and the transition from clay to turf. It's uh, the good ones are great, you know. Yeah, that's for sure. And were you around in your experiences? Looks like you did USA Baseball. Looks like you did the Gwinnett Stripers in Lawrenceville. <laughs> yeah, they, they were the Gwinnett Braves back then. So that was Chris Ball. He was the head groundskeeper back then. And he had won like minor league baseball field of the year three years in a row. Yeah. So, you know, I've always been told, you know, if you want to be the best, learn from the best. Yeah. So he was one of the first people I sought out in the industry to work under. And man, he'll probably tell you I was definitely not the best operator of anything when I first got there. <laughs> Dragging an infield, man, my circles were not very strong circular put it that way the first time so he whooped me into shape a little bit before i went up to the dc and like you said usa baseball was in my backyard so going to nc state it's about a 25 minute drive to that field so i was fortunate to be able to work there while i was in school so let's talk a little bit about philosophical approaches to managing those surfaces right we're going to get to golf for sure but you know when you work for a superintendent i mean you worked out at desert mountain as well you've you know had your share of working for really good golf course superintendents all the way to pebble beach Mm -hmm. You certainly, like you said, learned from some of the best. I'm interested philosophically in how you see sports turf managers differ in the way they approach their skin care. Uh, are there most a lot of similarities or really philosophically are some of them different? Man, the skincare is definitely, I think every field's different, just kind of like every golf course is different. Every infield mix at every property is probably a little bit different. So I know guys have a lot of different ways of managing it, but people that flood, you know, I mean, after every single series, and I mean, just soak and soak and soak. It's amazing how much water that these clay surfaces can take. And then the next day, they're perfectly, you know, ready to go. I will say, you know, you got spring training fields in Arizona compared to, you know, on the East Coast, those infield surfaces are much harder to keep. Right. That cleat in, cleat out type of, you know, porosity in that soil. That's right. Uh, So it's a little bit harder of a challenge in the Southwest, keeping those not just concrete hard. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty neat now. uh, Greg with the Giants is actually using soil moisture sensors in his dirt to actually start managing and trying to keep soil consistent throughout his skin. Yeah, Greg is on the leading edge of these things. And, you know, I've been working with Dan Cunningham at Yankee Stadium for years. And I remember when the early days of the just the spectrum moisture meter were were around and I was bringing it to the field and he was like, oh, boy, I can get a number. This is pretty good. And having the in-ground things are really handy. So you have this great career in baseball. Looks like you spent a little bit of time at the University of Texas doing some more sports field stuff. But eventually, uh, you land at one of the sort of signature golf locations in the world, the, the Monterey Peninsula. And lo and behold, you're a pebble for an AIT and then the Lynx at Spanish Bay as the assistant superintendent. So what then, Charlie, was the shift to golf from sports? I'll give Dr. Rick Brandenburg from NC State the credit on that transition. I was fortunate to take one of his courses in the four-year program when I was still a two-year student. It made an exception for me to, to get in with that class with Dr. Gilberton, Dr. Kearns, and Dr. Brandenburg. And mm. he brought up the opportunity to intern at Desert Mountain. You know, we had a little case study on Havelinos. 
mm-hmm. and how he helped with uh, you know pre-emergent grub control, essentially by using light traps to to catch, you know what I mean, and start monitoring before your sprays. So right. I was fascinated by that, and at that point in time, I had a new girlfriend uh, that was studying global luxury management, and she was looking at a job in Scottsdale at the the Fairmont Hotel, which is right on TPC Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. So we both kind of decided, you know what, let's get out of the south for a little bit and go try something new. So I went to Dr. Rick after class one day and got my resume. One thing led to another. And next thing you know, Sean Emerson was and uh, Keith Hirschberger were the mm-hmm. two that I spoke with and yep. was out there in uh, just a couple months. And Desert Mountain is one hell of a property. If you've Ooh. never been out there, I yeah. mean, it's uh, just it's honestly jaw dropping. Yeah, they did a great job when I was there. And uh, we were there for one year. And my wife was able to get a promotion within the Fairmont to help build their new hotel in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. So we made the jump from Desert Mountain. And like you said, I was at University of Texas back in sports surf a little bit. But briefly before, I mean, I was even at Desert Mountain at a three month internship with uh, Damon DiGiorgio down at uh, Playa Grande, which is uh, in the northern coast of the Dominican Republic. Yeah, yeah. So I got to help grow in that course, which was 100%, you know, pure dynasty past bottom seeded. Uh, wall to wall. And wow. I got to learn how to spray in the metric system and in Spanish, which was a pretty <laughs> good introduction. Well, it certainly spray. served you well now in the technology world. Amen. Okay. So eventually, and boy, you had the cutest picture of your little girl there the other day uh, on X. So what then got you out to Pebble? So it's funny, you know, COVID obviously hit and working in the hotels and also in the college sports industry, both those obviously took a pretty big hit. So we made a decision to go back to North Carolina, just kind of to reset an opportunity came up for Pebble Beach. And I'd never seen, uh, put it this way, any type of Pebble Beach posting on TurfNet before. So when I saw it, I thought it was fake at first and went ahead and just put an application out there. And 15 minutes later, I got a phone call from Eric McAllister, uh, who is now the superintendent at the Lynx of Spanish Bay. Mm-hmm. We hit it off on the phone immediately and had maybe a couple of days conversation with the wife about, hey, do we want to do one more adventure essentially heading west? Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, yeah, we accepted the offer as an AIT, went out there, took a pretty big step back in the pay and everything else but from what I've been doing. But the opportunity to go to Pebble and prove myself mm-hmm. and get an assistant role was very, very appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And six weeks as an AIT, I was very fortunate to apply and get the assistant job at Spanish Bay. So I went from Pebble to Spanish and was at Spanish for almost two years and loved every minute of it. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate that never worked out there, that you can wear the same clothes every day. You you have to wear uh, uh, layered clothing and rain jackets and rain pants 12 months a year, don't you? I was in a rain suit every single day <laughs> Probably. I think I wore a rain suit every day. I mean, it's when it's beautiful there, you know, it always happens, right, during a U.S. Open or some other thing that they film there. But the majority of time when you guys are working out there, I, you know, I remember chatting with Rich McIntosh at Torrey Pines. It was the same sort of thing. Every day you got to wear those same sort of clothes because of the marine layer coming in. So it is a particular way to grow grass that up to that point you had never grown grass like that. Was that your first time growing annual bluegrass? Yeah, it was my first time trying not to kill it. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I fell in love with Boa. The only thing, you know, is you can somehow, we need another chemical for seed head suppression. That's all I'll say. You yeah. know, you can only put up so much <laughs> ethophon in a year. But Poa was a lot of fun to grow. We tried to really, really add, selectively remove Poa and add a lot more ryegrass in our fairways at Spanish Bay during our time there. So we had a pretty intense regulator program. We regulated fairways with Tremit, Cutlass, Primo, you know, you name it. Just trying to really favor the rye. And uh, we got a pretty nice stand now, so really proud of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a spectacular location. And I mean, obviously, the anguine and nematode presented an enormous amount of challenge out there, you know, forcing a lot of places to change grasses. You know, I remember from back in the days when Mark Mashad, uh, the guy that predated Chris Dahlheimer, 
that was always an issue. You know, it is a good place. Uh, grass wants to grow out there, but that doesn't mean it's without its challenges, especially events are like uh, second nature. You guys have uh, tour events and majors and seniors and ladies now. It's a busy place, right, Charlie? Yeah, it's unbelievable. COVID obviously added to that. But I think the last two years I was with the company, you know, we were like 104% oversold at Pebble. Yeah. <laughs> so people were paying for not guaranteed to finish rounds at full rates. So that's, I mean, if that tells you how busy we were, I mean, you got, we started five in the summertime and the first heat time, 605. All right. So listen, you know, you're still a young guy and we're going to get to the green site work that you're doing and, and yep. what it's like working there. But before we take a break and, and get to that conversation, there's not as many people going into the turf grass industry as used to. Many of the people that are going into the turf grass industry are somehow re-entering it in some ways from another profession. Maybe we're going to get them out of FFAs or right out of high school. Mm-hmm. Certainly the NC State Ag Institute there is good for creating a lot of folks. What kind of advice, looking back, Charlie, now you got a kid, you're taking a paternal look on your life all of a sudden, decisions take on a different dimension, right? When you've got a mouth to feed, especially as cute as she appears to be. What kind of advice would you give young people coming through now or thinking about it now? A lot of young people like podcasts. Sometimes they listen to this. I want to make sure when we have somebody like you, we give a chance for you to talk about some of the things from your experience that really mattered to you, right? You talked about Rick Brandenburg, maybe being a mentor in that class, really turning the thing around. But you also had a lot of different experiences working with lots of different people. Sometimes people could get discouraged by that or motivated by that eventually you had to decide on something what kind of advice would you give young people in those years uh, uh, approaching in and out of college good question for me i absolutely love the turf industry obviously i've been in just about every sector and i always tell guys that are young that you know grass grows on six out of seven continents pretty much you know what i mean you can get a job just about anywhere growing grass and if you like being outside you know what I mean? You can pretty much have your pick of your offices. So you can make your own story pretty quick in the turf industry. And people want to help you succeed and people want to help you move up. And not every industry is like that. Almost every superintendent I've worked for has been over backwards to help me get my next job, which is just incredible because yeah. most people don't want to lose people. And again, this is uh, Dr. Brandenburg, especially for me, is definitely one of my you know closest mentors. And he'll still pick up the phone and <laughs> give you his ear which is fantastic. Yeah, that's for sure. I've known Rick a long time, and I'm wondering about the conflict between the various aspects of the industry, like you were committed, mm-hmm. you know, to baseball, and then, and then you went to golf. Rick had an impact on that. That class had an impact on that. But is sports a different way to be in the industry that in some ways didn't appeal to you as much as being on a golf course? The thing for me, just liking baseball, and I can't speak to all sports, but for Major League Baseball, which is, you know, my dream was to be like the head groundskeeper for the Atlanta Braves one day. <laughs> and uh, that was what I thought I wanted to do. But and when I got married and all those weekends, the 162 days, uh, 81 home games already taken up, the full on not having the nights mm-hmm. and golf, you know what I mean? When the sun goes down, for the most part, you know what I mean? You can get back home to dinner, not every day, but for the most part, you can get back out there. Yeah. Baseball, you know, with all the extra events on the field now, too, it's uh, it's not just turf management there yeah. or play management there. You're, you're having to juggle a lot of different hats. That's right. And nothing but nothing but respect to all the head groundskeepers out there. But I wanted a little bit more. Uh, nothing but respect. You have to be an animal uh, to get through that. 
100%. I really wanted to have a different challenge with actual turf management. So, uh, and that grow a little bit more grass than just those two and a half acres. And yeah. I'm really fortunate I got into golf. Yeah. And I, I would say knowing a lot of, especially in baseball, you are exactly correct, Charlie. It's a lifestyle, just like playing the game. I mean, you think about it. That's the longest, one of the longest seasons of any sport. Anybody involved in it, it's long. And then now we've added hockey. And I remember Dan at Yankee Stadium, they made him go look at something for motocross. They were going to put motocross in Yankee Stadium. We got football games all the time. We have a soccer team that we host, you know, 13 events a year at the stadium. So you are exactly right. Uh, You ultimately got to the place where you could make a lifestyle choice. And as we go to break, Charlie, uh, what was what appealed to you about going to Greensite that it gave you a little bit of a different lifestyle now that you had uh, another addition to the family? I'd say so. That and, you know, being in Pebble Beach, all of our family was on the East Coast. So I have an opportunity to have a secure job in the Southeast mm-hmm. and being able to travel. And I consider superintendents and turf managers my, my friends. Yeah. And I believe in the products we have. And I think I'm helping, you know what I mean? Not just selling. That's great. Which was a, a very, very appealing to me. Ah, very good. I'm with Charlie Good from Greensight Technologies. He's a Southeastern sales lead down there. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Disrupting putting greens for soil management remains a sore spot for golf course superintendents. Yet managing soils remains vital for putting green success. As we learn to focus more on organic matter as a target, Dryject services that aerate, top dress, and amend in one pass with less disruption than coring is your go-to tool. Dryject services offer the most effective way to get the most out of your sand applications, which are key to organic matter management. Contact your local Dryject rep for more information or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here. I'm with Charlie Good. Charlie is with Greensight. And Charlie, let's start right there. In preparation for this, I've sort of paid attention to Greensight because I remember when they got into a deal uh, with Toro. And they had the drones and they would be able to do these flyovers and Toro got involved and it was a big deal at the show. And then poof, they went away. Next thing I know, the drone thing is still there. And now the mower thing has been going on with you. I know for a long time they've had turf cloud. Now, of course, there's soil sensors, there's staff planning. It's become a real sort of digital platform for all types of industries, golf, sports, ag, and even the defense industry, which I think is capitalizing on the drone expertise, unmanned vehicles that you guys have. Can you take a minute and give me the sort of what a turf manager should know about Greensight today? Absolutely. Yeah. So Greensight is a pretty unique company. Uh, We're made up of all former superintendents on the turf side. And essentially, we have an all-in-one, I guess, cloud-type platform for all of your really applications for turf. So like you mentioned, our turf cloud can host not just your job board, your application boards and irrigation overlays, but we can actually put our mowers on there as well. You can control your mowers from your turf cloud. So being able to use your irrigation, mowers, labor tracking, fertility tracking all on one platform instead of five 
five different apps has become a pretty powerful tool. Yes, it has. So your experience on the golf course and now you're meeting with golf course superintendents. We're going to get to the sports turf guys in a minute, but let's start with the golf course superintendents and what's your discussion with them like, right? This is not, in my experience, been an industry that necessarily is full of people who want to do digital stuff. In fact, many people got into this business to avoid doing those kinds of stuff. So let's start with the whole idea of when you were in the turf grass industry, were you able to utilize this or similar technology that now you can leverage when you're having the conversations with superintendents? So when I was with Desert Mountain, Greensight was actually out there flying drones back in 2017. Mm. So I got familiar with the company back then working with Desert Mountain. As far as the actual robotics for the mowers and everything, I knew they existed. I'd seen them and home lawns and everything, but I had no idea until this past year that they had the systematic, you know, straight line mowing without having to put the wires in. Mm-hmm. Once I saw that in practice on our own golf course, I kind of had that light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big thing with these things with all types of supers is you really need to see it in person and honestly, typically on your actual property to really get that aha moment. You know, one hour, two hour demo where you're seeing it cut 2,500 square feet, probably on a flat square, isn't going to show you, you know, it mowing a slope greens around or driving range floor when there's actual balls out there or something like that. So seeing it actually having a demo on your own property is by far the best way to start being able to make your head wrap around the idea of putting a robot on your facility why would a superintendent let's get to two questions right one obviously labor nobody has to remind everybody about the tough parts of labor and that's of course why people are now considering investing in technology because in the last several years labor got really expensive a lot more expensive than it used to be and that's the same driver that drove agriculture into using more technology labor got too expensive and not as available as it used to be so When you start to talk to people about demoing, number one, obviously, it must be, okay, maybe I got a labor shortage, so let's start there. What's the entry package? I mean, most guys aren't going to be like Sean Tully at the Metal Club, where they bought a whole bunch of them from Kevin, right, who used to work out there, right? I mean, not everybody's going to take that big leap. What do you recommend when you say demoing? How do I know I should demo it? How do I know I should be thinking about a robot? It was an aha moment, but is it really just hype, Charlie? Or do you really see this being something that superintendents can start adopting? Let's start with how do you get them started? What's the entry package for most of these guys? Yeah, so we always tell people, don't even think about your whole golf course. Let's think about the areas that you really need the most help with tackling where it's hard to get labor out there. So areas around the clubhouse where you need to be quiet and areas on your practice facility, somewhere you already have power. So I always tell people to start where you already have outlets because power, it's a requirement for these mowers to run. We do have a solar option, but for me, solar and golf doesn't really mix right now for me. So actually having power run is kind of the biggest barrier to entry on a lot of these areas. Hmm. So I say that having a demo, like I said, it's going to show you whether it's hype or not. Once you see it mow a green surround in the rain, you know, up to 45% slopes and it goes right back out the next day and mows it again. It's pretty remarkable. And at Spanish Bay, we'll put it this way, man, we always had our green surrounds on number one tee surround and uh, the putting green, chipping green area. We could never go over there and actually push mow rotary till after the last tee time because it was too early in the morning and too loud to get going and then we'd have play all day so we couldn't get over there so we were paying overtime for two guys to stay late to push mow you know rough to high grass so right now they've got a mower set up over there now that mows for six hours overnight and does their entire chipping green approach and 
surrounds and it's been working flawlessly. So that's interesting. Let's stay right there for a second, Charlie. That's very interesting because you raised a point that actually has been something I was surprised to hear about from a lot of guys. And that is how much either the quiet was required, right? By, by what you're saying, right? You can't get out there and make noise by the lodge, right? Or because in my experience driving around with Sean out at uh, the metal club was that the golfers really liked it quiet. A lot of people, I, I certainly wasn't appreciating how much the quiet would matter to people. Certainly the labor makes sense on every level, but the quiet has been an interesting selling point. Has that surprised you as well, or did you always lead with, boy, this is a nice way to handle this because it's quiet around the clubhouse or quiet in an area where you need that? Because places like Wingfoot, for example, comes to mind where they've got to be really quiet. A lot of the clubs in the desert uh, have to be quiet because people live all all mm -hmm. around them, right? Has it surprised you how much quiet matters? It did at first. I didn't think of it as you know one of the main selling points, but once you actually go out and you realize how many properties do have you know noise ordinances where you can't start a backpack blower until eight a.m. or they have cottages that are you know right there beside the golf course that have you know half acre lawns that you still have to go out there and maintain. That's become a really big selling point for me is they are quieter than our conversation right now. You know when you have those running compared to just the one weeder, it's it's remarkable. You know, I mean the decibel difference. So. That's that's been a very, very big selling point. Most of the time when you do a demo, the golfers come up and ask you if it's mowing yet. And then, the, you know, they go down and they see the grass being cut. And it's a pretty a light bulb moment again for them. And golfers, from our experience, have really, really loved seeing them, honestly. Once they see them the first time, we see more people taking selfies with robots than you can imagine, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> when we go out to demo. So that's that's been cool. So the big change, right, and maybe this is the aha moment you had. Obviously, the big change was that in the past, it used to mow a random pattern. And now it has the ability, not only do you not have to bury wires, but it can follow straight line patterns. And as I understand it from a conversation I had with John Lobenstein a few years ago at the Montgomery Parks golf courses where they've tried these uh, Husqvarna's, for example, in your case, uh, it changes high to cut on the fly as well. Is that flexibility something that really appeals to people where we can change heights of cut or is it really just... You know, it's saving me a guy. I don't have to worry about it. And it's easy to maintain and it's no problems, right? Is is What are guys thinking about? Right. Or are they thinking about it's hassle-free because nothing's hassle-free? No, absolutely not. And, you know, with the multiple heights of cuts, I mean, that one machine can do multiple areas with different heights of cuts. I mean, you can have the same machine go mow a chipping green at 400 and then go back and charge once it finishes the chipping green and go mow the surrounds at an inch and a half and do that, like I said, with the same machine. It's going to automatically adjust its height to its work area. Hmm. So you don't have to bring a machine in, you know, wash it, put it up on a lift, change the height of cut, and take it back out to go mow rough. It's one machine, multiple areas, multiple heights of cut. Okay, what about flopping in the bunker? You keep talking about surrounds. What's the likelihood yep. that things going to fall in the bunker and then sit there all night? That's where installation becomes key. If you start pushing the limits on these things and putting them out of spec, then you can run into issues like that. But they're spec for 45% slopes, so you really don't want to put them on anything steeper than that. Bunkers, when you're mapping them, once you give them their borders, they're never going to go past those borders. So as long as you're not mapping it you know, into the actual bunker, theoretically, your, your machine should never get in there. And if you're not putting on slopes that are going to make it slip and go into a bunker, then they won't have that problem. And there's going to be areas on your golf course where you obviously cannot put these robots yet. 
and you know down the road we may be able to get more slopes and stuff like that which would be exciting but you know just like right now with your bigger rough mowers there's going to be areas where you can't fit that mower around green surrounds around bunkers that you have to pick up with a rotary push mower and same type thing with these robots you can't get every little piece so you're still gonna have to go out there with traditional equipment in some areas and tie in which is i want people to fully realize that okay so let's talk a little bit about john mentioned in one conversation i had that uh, ryegrass in the in the mid-atlantic in may grow so fast the robot can't keep up uh, obviously you're doing a lot of warm season grass stuff that stuff grows pretty good as well do you have to sometimes adjust the number of units or an area that a unit can cover because of the growth rate of the grass so we spec the mowers for the 550 which is a smaller mower the very high end we'll spec it for an acre and a quarter and that's if it's mowing 24 7 you know with like the most opportune transport path to and from its work area to its charging station and a pretty flat surface to mount when we come do site designs we'll take you know into account your topography where can we put the charging stations and start paring down from that acre and a quarter to really start giving you hey how much can this one machine give you and irrigation windows are going to affect that as well so you got a lot of mental gymnastics to kind of work through to figure out what the right number of mowers is for your area uh, if you just go strictly on acreage you're going to run into problems so it's always important like i said to actually have someone come out there measure your sites look at where you're going to actually be able to set these things to live permanently, how long does it take them to get to and from. So there's a lot of different variables that go in mm. to a site design to make it you know, accurate. And we've gone through growing pains to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. So listen, Charlie, we're going to take another break here. Then I want to come back and talk a little bit about maintenance, uh, a little bit about the yep. mental gymnastics that are involved here, and and then give you a little bit chance to talk about the value of these things on sports fields, uh, particularly for communities where labor really is at a premium. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Charlie Good from Greensight Technologies. We'll be right back. Depending on where you are, your season is either wrapped up or just getting started. Whether you are planning your nutrient management program or executing it, the pros at the Plant Food Company have the products and services that support the best playing conditions in the world. So if you're putting together your nutrient management program, trust your Plant Food Company rep to provide you with the latest technology that supports plant health and maximizes playability. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Charlie Good. Charlie, we wrapped up talking a little bit about the mental gymnastics, as you described it in site design. Tell me about the irrigation window things that you mentioned, and what are the other things? Do you worry about play? I'm trying to think what else would disrupt these things. They mow in the rain, but they know enough when to go back to the charging station. What are some of the gymnastics that you've got to do? Let's start with irrigation window. How does that disrupt how the robot will work? So obviously everyone knows internals are expensive. The mowers can really only see objects that are 25 by 25 centimeters. So if you have irrigation running while they're mowing in that work zone, you know, there's a chance they're going to bump into that head. Oh. And not saying it's going to break it, but damage to an internal that costs a lot of money is, mm -hmm. you know, not ideal. So we typically recommend that supers let their mowers come back in when they start the irrigation cycle. And then, you know, once they know number one fairway cycle is done, they can send it back out in that hole. It just takes a while for you to really 
figure out, okay, how long does it take for my, you know, cycles to end and when can I send them back out? And mm-hmm. what's the longest cycle I'm ever going to run? That's typically what I ask people. Okay. Like what is your, your soil application? You know what I mean? Water plan. You're going to have to really water in something, you know, an inch deep, you know, like how long does your fairway cycle last? And then right. we'll spec that into the site plan and we're going to try and overspec, uh, or I guess, I guess you say underspec the mowers mm-hmm. just to make sure that we're always going to have enough time to mow everything with your shortest window. So there are some courses where they might only have centerline irrigation and the chance of the mower hitting that while it's running for six minutes is like a lightning strike, you know? Yeah. So there's not too much of a chance, but we want to avoid it. So we typically recommend, you know, you do not have the mowers going while you're running water. You don't care. How about play? Do you care about play? So play, I always recommend, hey, get everything that's shortcut, that's going to be fairways, you know, approaches to type deal. Get that cut before play. You can have rough cut, in my opinion, going 24-7. They're so quiet. They're so small. There's just very little chance of it really affecting play ever. And there's a couple of courses already that are running them in the rough 24-7 and having great results. But for short grass, for me, I don't want to see personally on my golf course robots out there in the middle of the day. So mowing overnight, getting all the fairways done at night before, you know, that first 7 o'clock tee time uh, is kind of how I try to spec those. Excellent. And then you can get your extra acreage out of the machine. Like I said, if you have rough bailout areas, you know, areas that are tough to get, you know, with traditional equipment, go ahead and put them there too. Okay. What about uh, now that they're deployed, is my only maintenance the mower blades and how often? So you do want to, you know, keep the mower clean underneath, but you did, I I really use a rag. I've got a scotch brush that I use and a toothbrush to kind of just wipe away grass clippings from the cutting motor and like the wheel motors. But you can really just use your hand and scoop away. You don't have to fully deep clean it. We actually don't recommend you use any water on the small mowers at all. If you can just check it, you know, every three, four days, lift it up. You just push stop on the machine, flip it Mm -hmm. upside down for one minute wipe, you know, with a rag, get the clippings off that's built up. Then you, if you know how to use a Phillips head screwdriver and you can go lefty loosey and take off the blade and the screw. And then you put on a new screw with the blade, a fresh blade and go righty tighty. You've, you know, sharpened your blades. Okay. Uh, it takes about five minutes for a machine. Huh. What about different approaches, right? Now this is getting popular, right? You Husqvarna and you guys, your partnership with them is certainly getting a lot of attention, but there have been other approaches to this. Certainly Toro is, they've got an autonomous mower. I will say candidly, and I'll probably get in trouble for it. It was not very impressive when I saw it in Florida this past year, but there are other approaches to autonomous mowing. Uh, A regular sort of mower, looks like a mower. You sort of stand on it like a landscape mower, and then you bring it out and you push a button and it's got a mission and it's regular mower blades. It's got computer vision. It's battery operated you guys got this other thing where you need like a fleet of those things. Are you getting anything about uh, from superintendents, from turf managers about them looking at different ways of mowing autonomously or, or basically this one is the one that most guys, you know, are going with? With our model, you know, it is fully autonomous. We do not have to have any human supervision whatsoever. When you retrofit existing, you know, equipment out there with uh, GPS technology, you still have to have an operator take it to and from its work areas mm-hmm. and monitor it to make sure it's not going to mess up. Mm-hmm. That machine's are thousands of pounds compared to 30 pounds to 100 pounds. Yeah. So your chance of, you know, actually being able to operate those, your window is still only the time that you actually have human beings on your golf course. Okay. So we're, you know, able to mow 24-7 compared to just when you're out there and you still don't have to have an operator anywhere near the equipment. There are a couple other people that are making fully, I call MoBots. I believe Crest is one of our uh, competitors. Echo has a uh, unit out there as well. Right. 
Each of them are a little bit different just depending on battery size, how much they can handle. Okay. The way people map is a little bit different from app to app. Okay. It's nice seeing more people come to the space, right. honestly, because competition is just going to make every product better. I couldn't agree more. Glad to hear you say that. I, I do think that's exactly right. I, I think the more we can get this adopted, the better. Now, again, before I get to sports, I want to ask you about golf. Can you imagine a golf course with only robots everywhere but greens you know we can because it's happening and if you know erwin over there in germany uh he's got a great blog called the french backyard which i actually stumbled upon almost probably three years ago now and he's mowing with over 100 robots i believe on his golf course and he might even have now some for greens over there overseas that i, I couldn't tell you if he does or not but being 30 former superintendent and everything, uh, the entire course for me still seems a way away because you do have to manage all those robots. You'd honestly need like a full assistant, full-time assistant. That's your robot guy. When you start going with 30 plus, you know, machines out there, because that's a lot of blades to change. You know what I mean? There's just, right. they're not maintenance free. You still got to monitor them. You still got to change blades. You still got to make sure everything's working right. Yeah. And you still got to have some labor. It's not like you're able to let every person go. There's still handwork. Right. You can't mow everything with these things. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Your detail work should just go through the roof with these. I mean, mowing is how we all got into the industry. Everyone loves mowing, but it's honestly one of the easiest jobs on a golf course. If you can give that all those hours to the robots and you're actually skilled labor, you know, pay them more because you'll need less employees and have them do a lot more detail work, your course is going to go from good to great. Uh, T detail, sprinkler head detail, all the extra things, pulling weeds and bunkers. Now your guys are freed up to do. Yeah. Rather than have to spend four and a half hours in the morning with three guys mowing fairways every other day. That's right. You can be a lot more efficient with your actual humans. Yeah. And that's your line. I mean, I tell you, that's your sales line right there is you get more out of the staff you keep. And one of the problems we're having is, you know, competing with labor in salary. And if you have fewer people, you can pay them more. Now, speaking of people that don't make a lot of money and, and we'll wrap up where we started, Charlie, your, your love for baseball and sports of, of all the uh, tweets or X posts that you've made uh, in the last several months, uh, the ones that you highlight these, you know, local community baseball fields and soccer fields where, you know, they don't really have a person that can even do it. The investment they can make in this is a real game changer. Can you talk a little bit about that impact? I'm sure it resonates with you in a different way than working with golf courses. Can you talk a little bit about working with communities that have adopted these uh, autonomous mower programs? Absolutely. Yeah, this is honestly my favorite segment. Uh, (laughs) You know, when you think about high school baseball coaches, they're not only teachers, you know, coaches, their fathers, their husbands, they've got and now they're sports turf managers. Mm-hmm. So they've got five, six different hats they're having to wear and they're not making any more money to do it. And summertime, I always tell people, July 4th in the South, man, every high school teacher still got to stay around town to mow grass. Otherwise, they come back and their turf's three and a half inches and no one wants to blow an outfield for hours on end. So being able to you know, use a $5,000 robot and supplement those coaches and get them their turf mode and honestly increase the performance of their turf. It means a lot to me. You know what I mean? It's great to see how they react to it. And uh, it's starting to spread a whole lot in North Carolina and Florida and Georgia. Uh, more and more counties now are starting to look into it, which is exciting because they're investing back in their programs and starting to give some more work-life balance to these coaches. Uh, you know, even Parks and Recs, you know, staffs where you have five or six guys, same thing, they're taking care of 30 fields. If you can, again, just get the mowing done, all the fence trimming, all the dirt work becomes a lot easier because you got way more time to do it. So let's get to the cost. And somehow it's hard to get these communities sometimes to invest like this. But it sounds like the way you've approached it has worked. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So the price point for the small ones is pretty much exactly $5,000. The big ones around $32,000. Mm. And if you start just looking at like operating costs, and that's typically kind of the way I go with a lot of these municipalities is it costs maybe about $2 per acre to mow with our one of our mowers with traditional equipment, depending on your gas prices and you know your labor prices, you're looking at anything between $15 to $40 per acre. Hmm. So just your per acre alone cost savings is it's pretty remarkable. And the ROI on that adds up pretty quickly to cost about $40 to $50 a year to charge these things year-round compared to diesel costs uh, and regular gas costs, which in California right now where I'm at is $5.80 for regular. So it's just <sighs> remarkable how much cheaper it is to actually use these. So public schools and universities, Husqvarna's, you know, fortunate to be a part of the source well program. So there's auto- automatic discounts involved with that. They have fleet program discounts where if you buy multiple mowers, you can get a price break plus more on your warranty. So there's a lot of different routes you can go. And you seem to really talk to one of your local reps to, to get the best pricing and options for yourself. But again, you can't put a dollar amount on your time. And for me now, having a daughter, I just think about these coaches. One in particular brought in high school. He's got two daughters. And again, you know, he's coaching three different teams, including the high school team. And mm-hmm. not having to spend 10 to 12 hours a week in the summertime on that field with no one else out there, you know, it's just, it's invaluable to him. And again, you, you can't put a price on time. That's all you got. So, yeah, that's uh, all you got. For all yeah. those guys. Yeah, I just encourage all school districts, you know what I mean, to try and give your coaches a better work-life balance. That's It's really, like I said, they'll pay for themselves. Charlie, it's been a pleasure chatting with you young man i really appreciate you taking the time i I know you're out and about traveling a fair amount and i hope that you uh get back for the holiday season and really enjoy it in the native land uh, so to speak back in the south really appreciate you taking the time thanks a lot charlie hey thank you so much for having me frank Big thanks to Charlie Goode. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.